Would you look and follow along as I read from John chapter 4, beginning at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out from the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let me pray and ask God's blessing today. Father, we're grateful to be together. We would pray that you use this word to remind our hearts of the truthfulness and the identity, the result of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to us as he is revealed in this precious passage. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Father, that you might enable us to properly respond to the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we love. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, certainly as we read from the text there, verse 42 concludes with that wonderful statement that we know, according to the Samaritans, that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It's no longer because of what you said, they are responding to the woman, but because we know and we have heard that he indeed is the Savior of the world. As we come to verse 42 and we look particularly at 39 through 42, we really come to the climax to the story itself. There's a lot that could be said about the woman at the well and this Samaritan woman, but really when you get to verse 42, he says, I, they say this is indeed the Savior of the world. You remember down previously in 426, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And now he identifies himself to the Samaritans, giving him that title of the Savior of the world. It is a huge, huge title. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. You remember in uh, Matthew's account in chapter 120, when at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord had appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying that she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their, what? From their sins. 
His name's Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Matthew, right there in chapter 120, tells us that Jesus saves. You know, it's interesting, and I think you know this, that the name, is, the name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which literally means Yahweh saves. I mean, we are rarely conscious of it, but every time the name Jesus is found on our lips, we are professing that He is indeed a Savior. His name Jesus means Yahweh saves, and He is a Savior from our sins. Now, we certainly know from the teaching of both Old and New Testament that Jesus is an exclusive Savior. There are not many Saviors. Certainly, I think even as John maybe pins this title that the Samaritans give to him, it had been going around, no doubt, other emperors were called Savior. But the Bible tells us that Jesus is an exclusive Savior. It says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There's only one Savior. There's only one mediator. Of course, we are well uh, versed in John 14, 6, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but through me. He is an exclusive Savior. However, I think we know that that is debated today. It is certainly not debated today amongst... um, the world, we would understand that. That's debated in the evangelical world, and a number of things reveal that. That is there only one way to God? There's a question that comes. Some of you might remember watching the memorial service for the victims of the September 11th attack that took place in New York, and it was the memorial service that Oprah Winfrey hosted. And at that memorial service, there were priests, there were rabbis, there were Protestant ministers, there were Muslims on the platform, Hindus, and each one of the religions had their own particular cleric, teacher, priest, mullah, would step up to the microphone and speak. What I thought was most interesting about that memorial service was what the Protestant minister read. He read, maybe some of you remember, from Romans chapter 8. What he left unsaid, I think, was most revealing and most telling. He got up and said, in all these things, Romans 8, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, you well know it, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. And it was at that point that he stopped his reading. Shall separate us from the love of God. He left out the very next phrase that you might well know by heart, which is in Christ Jesus, our, what? Lord. He left out the name Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, it could be that if he were here and he would tell me that he ran out of time, that that's all he could read, maybe that would be one thing. But I hardly think so. 
I think, for him to mention the name Christ Jesus our Lord in a national celebration was maybe for him just too much. And so he sacrificed truth on the altar of tolerance. And this happens all the time today. I have a friend who is a very, very, very high-ranking government official. High-ranking, almost as high as you can go in many places of this world. And he was invited to speak on his faith at a prayer breakfast. And he went on and spoke at the prayer breakfast. And my friend loves Christ. He loves Christ. He uh, honors Christ. And so he just spoke on Christ at this prayer breakfast. Well, a reporter was there, and here's what the reporter gave him um, after the event. And he shared this with me. Here's what the reporter shared with him. He said, what bothered me most, he said, was your remark that you had to felt that you had to take every occasion you could, including the ecumenical prayer breakfast, to let people know that they should accept Jesus as their Savior. Because it might be one of the few times those people have to save themselves and achieve eternal salvation. He said, forgive me, but I do not think anyone at that prayer breakfast was, was without their own faith. And those of faith differing from yours probably did not wish to be accosted by you with your pushing your own doctrine upon them. He says, I feel you should restrain from the expression of your personal religious beliefs at public occasions. He said, don't worry, we'll all get to heaven one way or another under our own particular face. End of quotes. So here he was invited to a prayer breakfast, but yet somehow he can't speak of a savior. And this particular reporter was offended by him pushing that upon everybody who was there. That seems to be the sentiment of the day. Years ago, when ex-Beatle George Harrison died, uh, today's show anchor Ann Curry interviewed a man by the name of Anthony DeCurtis. He's a writer of the Rolling Stone magazine. And DeCurtis talked about Harrison's search for meaningful spiritual life. And Curry said in this article, apparently Harrison was the most spiritual of the group, the Beatles. And she said, everything else in life can wait, but the search for God cannot wait, end of quotes. He was searching for God, and I suppose that takes up print, especially because he was one of the Beatles. But you might ask, what kind of God was Harrison searching for? I'm asking that question to you this morning. I mean, did you know that the Hindus themselves have 330 million gods? So which one are we talking about when he was searching for God? In fact, the Hindus have eight gods, if you added them up, per family. In addition to that, they have 450 million Hindus who worship 75 million cows. So who, who are we talking about when we talk about Jesus Christ? Who exactly is he? You're going to get varied opinions on this. Hilary Swank, who was an Oscar-winning actress, an Academy Award-winning actress, was asked by one reporter, where does Jesus fit into all of your and your husband's success? 
she said this, it's not like we're Catholic or Christian or Episcopal or practice Judaism or Buddhism. We just kind of believe in a higher power. And that doesn't mean a God-man, or as she said, a man-God, or someone on a cross. It just means that we all have God-like qualities and we have the power inside us to do good things, is what she said. Listen, beloved, in a sea of confusion, let me state to you very clearly, Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior who forgives sins and delivers us from the wrath of God. Amen? Listen, John 4 is going to make it crystal clear that this is the case as we walk through this account. Now, as you look down in John chapter 4, we've been weaving our way through this marvelous account. And we've been looking at the response of Jesus sitting at the well with her, asking her for a drink of water. She was stunned that a Jewish man would be speaking to a Samaritan woman. And right then and there, the Savior, the one who is Messiah, offered her eternal living water. That if you drink from this water that I provide, you will never have to drink or be thirsty again. And she didn't quite understand. And so Jesus told her, you remember, to go and call your husband. And she said, I have no husband. And Jesus then began to expose her sin, did he not? Imagine just in the nature of that conversation for him to tell her that you've had five husbands and the man that you're presently living with is not your husband. And then she began to go into a discourse on worship. You say that it's in this mountain. Our people say that it's in this mountain. And I think far from trying to send out a smoke screen, this was a woman who wanted to know what to do with her own sin. She wanted to know how to worship in the manner of what he was talking about. And the woman said, look down in 425, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And so he identified himself to this Samaritan woman, to this woman who uh, in many ways was so far from the kingdom of God as we would see it. And he revealed himself as the Messiah who was speaking to her. And then just at that point in verse 27, the disciples came back. The woman leaves, if you will. She goes back to her people in 29 and says, come and see a man that told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And so verse 30, they went out of the town and they were coming to him. And that's a little bit where we left off the story. And Jesus took the moment at that point in time to tell the disciples, do you not, do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. We likely, he might have said this in maybe December and January when our Lord spoke. And then in four months of time, the harvest would come in mid-April. But he, of course, is now speaking metaphorically, is he not? Telling the disciples and telling us to not wait four months. Lift up your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. They're white for a harvest of souls, if you will. 
And though they could not see this, of course, he is deity. Of course, he is omniscient. He would have already known that that woman went back to her town. He would have already known about verse 30 that they were coming to him. And the intents of the language is that they were in transit as he was speaking to the disciples. Sovereignly know it. He told them to lift up the eye, their eyes. The harvest is now. Say, so, well, what happens? Well, what happens next is that John outlines for us the only proper response to the person of Christ. That's what flows from that text there from 39 to 42. There is a commitment that is made to believe in him. And then there is secondly a confession as to his identity. And so I want to just take this time as we close this account out to look at two crucial truths that capture the only proper response to the person of Christ. Listen, he is a unique Savior. He is an exclusive Savior. You say, well, what must I do? And this is where John takes us now into the text. Number one, you must respond by believing in him. You must respond by believing in him. Pick up the text in verse 39. It says, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. This woman's testimony as she got up from the well, left her water jar there, went back to the Samaritan people. As she went back to those Samaritan people and identified that testimony as he told me all that I ever did, these people came to Christ at the well, and verse 39 says, from that town they believed in him. They believed in him because of her testimony. Indeed, the harvest was being reaped at that, at that very moment. His testimony was, uh, and hers to them, was that he revealed everything that I ever did. I mean, imagine this woman going back to her people. It's interesting. Some people say, well, hey, exactly when did she become uh, a follower of Christ? Don't know, but maybe it was in verse 26, I would think, when he said to her, I who speak to you am he. One of the greatest realizations of a changed life, of a changed heart, is a proclamation to other people. And this worshiper, the woman who I believe became a worshiper, went back and became a proclaimer. And she began to tell these people, the Samaritans, her fellow Samaritans, all that Christ had done. I mean, right then and there, she was struck by his omniscience. She was struck by his deity. He was struck, she was struck right by his insight into her very soul. The one who in John 2, 23, knew all hearts. The one who saw Nathaniel under the tree. The one who filled, in John chapter 2, the water jars with wine. The one who had now sought her and found her. She became a worshiper and the worshiper became uh, a proclaimer of the gospel. She was pierced, if you will. He is the one who knows the very hairs on our head. He is the one he knows when the sparrow falls. He is the one who knows in Psalm 139 when we rise up and when we lie down. He is the one who knows a word on our, on our tongue before we speak it. And so as this woman came back and gave testimony, these Samaritans believed. Look what happened next in verse 40. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there for two days. It's amazing. It's fabulous, actually. Such confidence in the person of Christ. He was the long-awaited Messiah, and we don't have the contents of what those two days must have been like, but it must have been two glorious days. I think maybe what pulled him in to them inviting Christ back was the woman's testimony. Can this be the Christ? Well, they not only came out to him at the well, then they invited him back, and he stayed there with them at that time. I mean, it's a little bit of an insight from John here, the writer, that he came into his own in chapter 1 and his own received him not. He comes now unto those who are not his own, Samaritans, and they become his own. But look what John says in verse 41. He goes on to add this. He said, and many more believed because of his word. And so if you look back in 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. But now in verse 41, many more believed, and I love this phrase, because of his word. It's not just that the people came uh, from the testimony of the woman, but that many more believed because of the very words of Jesus Christ. The power lies not in the woman's testimony, though I would not want to discount that, The power lies in the word of Jesus Christ. In fact, look what they said in verse 42. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Their faith came from his word. And it was they, it was him who they were resting on for their salvation. You can notice in verse 42, it says, we know, in other words, we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. So they not only heard it for themselves, but they came to know it in a very personal way. So beloved, this is the only proper response to the person of Jesus Christ. It is to place your faith in Him. In fact, look back at 739. It says there that many Samaritans from that town, and here's what's key, it says that they believed in Him. Faith always has a direct object to it. It's not just that they believed. It's not that they're just searching for God. It's not that there's multiple ways to the Savior. But it's very clear that John says they believed in Him. They believed in the person of Jesus Christ. Look over, if you will, just a couple chapters in chapter 7 in verse 31. This is not an isolated text in verse 39 that says that they, that they believed in him. If you look at John chapter 7, and if you look there, you'll see it again in verse 31. Yet many of the people, it says, believed in him. They trusted Christ. Look over at John chapter 8 and in verse 30. You have that similar expression there. And he was saying these things, verse 30. And many believed in him, in the person of Christ. Look over at John chapter 10 in verse 42 when he's talking there about the uniqueness of the relationship of Christ to his father. It says in 10 
2, that many believed in him there. One more, look over at John chapter 11 in verse 45. It says that they were plotting to kill him and many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary had seen what he did. It says in 1145, they believed in him. And so listen, beloved, he is not one option of many. He is the only option for eternal life. And and let me see if I could just elaborate just a little bit further on this because I feel like our our, uh, society doesn't quite understand the nature of belief, the nature of saving faith. I'll I'll, I'll be brief here, but whenever you look in the Scripture at the nature of belief, it always involves three things, okay? It always involves three things. Number one, it involves knowledge, okay? Number two, it involves assent, assent by meaning the emotion, if you will. And thirdly, it involves trust. If someone is said to believe in something in the Scripture, number one, it's based on knowledge. It's based on the mind. It's based on an intellectual understanding of what someone is professing to believe. It has to engage the mind. It has to engage the intellect. But secondly, it involves a sense. It involves the emotions, if you will. The heart is involved. The assurance is involved. And then thirdly, it involves trust. In other words, the crowning element of belief is this area of trust or what we call the volitional will. And so real belief involves the whole person, it involves the mind, it involves the emotion, and it involves the will. If we spoke of the knowledge of the mind, the mind would understand a number of things. It would understand, number one, that God is sovereign. It would understand, number two, that man is depraved. It would understand, number three, that only Christ can save. So it involves knowledge. Secondly, it involves the heart. In other words, what I mean by that is the heart gives a sense, a assent to the truths of Christ. In other words, it is a settled confidence. It is an assurance that Christ's salvation is real, that his cross makes us secure. And then thirdly, as I mentioned, it involves the will where true belief then is the whole of your person embracing Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I say that is sometimes I have heard the expression, and I heard the expression this week that one man said of another man, he said, this certain type of minister is a Jesus guy. And the guy responded and said, I'm a Jesus guy. And as long as we're Jesus guys, I guess that's okay for me. The question I would ask is, who are you talking about though? It's real easy to say that. In fact, as you think about those three elements of belief, I'll just take you to the third. If Jesus Christ does not change the life, then there's not regeneration there. When true belief comes in, when belief enters into the soul, where it grants that assurance, it's always going to lead to a fundamental change of the person's life. So you can't just confess that you're a Jesus guy and I'm a Jesus guy. 
And as long as you're a Jesus guy and I'm a Jesus guy, then I think we can get along together. Let me say to you, Grace Church of the Valley, Christ is not to be trifled with. He is a glorious Savior. He is the one who gives eternal life. He is the one who gives the living water. He is the one who is, according to 426, the great I am. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the one revealed, look back in John chapter 1. Let's make sure this is the Jesus we're talking about. The Jesus in the beginning was with the Word, that one in one one. The Word that was with God, the Word that was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. That's the Jesus that's revealed in the Scripture. It's this Jesus that was, must be believed in. It's the Jesus revealed in John chapter 1 in verse 4 when it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, you not only believe that He's God, you not only believe that He's the Creator, but you realize and recognize here in 1.14 that that Word that dwelt in unapproachable glory from all time was the one who became flesh. That's Jesus. That's the one you must believe in. This is the Jesus revealed in John chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist set his eyes on him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away, what? The sins of the world. Listen, Hilary Swank may be an Oscar Academy Award winning actress, but when you have no recognition of your own sin, that doesn't make her very spiritual. You've got to recognize that you're a sinner. You've got to recognize that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who has come to take away sin. This is the Jesus that's revealed. Look in John chapter 134, where here John the Baptist said, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. That's the one who must be believed in. Look over at chapter 2 and verse 11, after he performed the miracle at Cana, when the water turned into the wine, it says this in 2.11 is the first of signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. It's the one who is the miracle worker. It's the one who can change water into wine and perform the miracle. Look over at John chapter 3 and verse 15. After He said that Moses lifted up the serpent so must the Son of Man be lifted up in verse 14, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. There it is. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. You can't just be a Jesus guy. You've got to start defining who is it that you're talking about. Because you have a lot of people who think a lot of different things. But listen, when these Samaritans came and when these Samaritans spent time with Jesus, they believed in Him. They put their trust, they put their confidence in Him. And there's no question as the story would go, it would have changed their will. In fact, look at John 3.18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of of the only Son of God. Beloved, it's enough for me to say that there is only one Savior. It is an exclusive Savior. It is God's only begotten Son. It's one thing to tell people that the love of God will never separate you, nor height, nor depth, and we glory in that. 
But to leave out Christ Jesus our Lord, that is the very message itself. And so look at John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. So number one, to say this, you must respond by believing in Him. Okay? You must. And so I would ask you, have you placed your faith in Christ? Have you placed your trust in Him? And then secondly, you must recognize that He is the Savior of the world. He is the Savior, secondly, of the world. That's the second response to Him. And it's there. They said to the woman in verse 42, this is the Samaritan testimony. It's no longer because of what you said we believe, for we have heard it ourselves, and now we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Stop there just for a second. It's such a huge, huge statement. I think you well know that God in the Old Testament was described as a Savior. He is by nature, He is by character a Savior. He is the one literally who is the saving one. We call Him the Deliverer in the Old Testament. We call Him the Rescuer. He is, for that title, a Savior. In fact, in Isaiah 43, 11, God said, I am the Lord and besides me, There is no other Savior. There's not multiple Saviors. There's one Savior. One Savior being bound up in God the Father. And then the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says in Isaiah 45, 21, there it says, Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. And so he was revealed as a savior. That's the testimony of Mary in Luke 1 in verse 46 when she said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my savior. You well know the angel in 2.11 of Luke said unto you, is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So in the Old Testament, He is revealed as a Savior. Jesus Christ at His birth was revealed as a Savior. The apostles preached Him to be a Savior. Acts 5.31, God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel. And the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ is a wonderful, as the song says, merciful Savior. Acts 13.23, speaking of Christ, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior. And it identifies him as Jesus, as he promised. Titus, Paul writing to his son in the faith, said grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. He said in 2.13 of Titus, waiting the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is a Savior. He's the Savior in 1 Timothy 4.10 of all people is God. And then we are exhorted in 2 Peter 3.18 to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You'll know, look in in verse 42 though. Here, it's a tremendous phrase what the Samaritans confess and what they identify. 
that he indeed is the savior of what? Of the world. He's the savior of the world. Now that word for world there, just just for a moment, has a wide range of meaning in the New Testament. In fact, I think it's interesting. This is why I'm keen on it. He's not just the savior, but he's the savior of the world. And, And again, beloved, this is why we do missions. He's not the savior of just the Central Valley, and that we know. He is the savior of the world. He's the savior of the Greek term is cosmos. It just means arrangement, but it has a wide range of meaning. 185 times that word is used in the New Testament. But what's interesting to me is that out of the 185 times it's used, it's used by John the Apostle here and in the other his other writings, 105 times. So 185 total, 105 by the Apostle John. Just to give you a comparison, Matthew, the gospel writer, uses the word world just eight times, okay? And when you look at Mark and Luke's gospel together, they use the world just three times. And so there's a great emphasis here in John's gospel by John the Apostle, and here by the declaration of the Samaritans that he's the Savior of the world. Now just real quickly, what does it mean that he's the Savior of the world? What does that mean that he's the Savior of the world? Well, you have to begin to break down the word world. And I've discussed this a little bit with you in 1 John. Let me go quick on it, okay? There's three different ways that that word is used in the New Testament. And I think you'll make make sense of this. World is just used of the creation of, of the world in which we live in, okay? If if sometimes the word world is translated in a context that God, Acts 17, 24, made the world and all things in it. So when he said that he made the world, he's not talking about anything else than God made the creation in which you live. The world in which we live. Sometimes it's used that way. Secondly, that word world is used in certain contexts to speak of being the world being under the influence of evil. That often when you read in the New Testament, it is describing not the created world, not the physical world, but the world of, of a system that is evil. It is a world in rebellion to God and to the person of Christ. It is a world that is under the dominion of Satan. In fact, do you remember in John 12, 31, later we'll see that he, Satan is described as the prince of this world. He's not talking there about the created world. He's talking about the world that is infiltrated with sin and rebellion against God. In fact, John, this writer, said in 1 John 5.19 that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Obviously, he's not talking about the created world, though that has the residue of a fallen world, but he's talking about the world as an evil influence, and that includes sinful thoughts, attitudes, judgments, desires, influences that are all opposed to God. Do you remember what Paul said about you? Uh, before Christ, he said, you once walked according to the course of this, what? World. In other words, before Christ, you were caught under that influence. And Paul exhorted us in Romans 12 too, to not be conformed to this world. In other words, don't be conformed to the system of this world, which is evil. 
And so number one, you got the world of creation. Two, the, the system of evil. But thirdly, the world speaks of the human race. Okay? And that's the meaning here. I just wanted to say that. That's the meaning here. When the Samaritans say that we know this is indeed the Savior of the world, the word there means that He's the Savior of the human race. It says in John 3.17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. In other words, God sent His Son into the world of the human race, not to condemn it, but to save it. And God loves our fallen world. Remember, of course, in John 3.16, for God so loved the, what? The world. Well, what, what does He love there? He loves you. He loves 7 billion people on the earth. He loves the human race is the point. And what the Samaritans here are confessing is we indeed know that He's not just the Savior, but He's the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of the human race. In other words, He saved those Samaritan people. And so the human race is the object of God's saving purpose. Remember it said in 1 John 2, 2, that is the propitiation not only for our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. And, and again, beloved, we understand that, that this is not just a Savior for Jerusalem. This is a Savior for the world. This is a Savior for Uganda. This is a Savior for the Jewish people. This is a Savior for Albania. This is a savior for the Hispanic people. And the harvest now among the Samaritans is a massive signal here of the universal scope of our Lord's saving mission. Christ is said to be, in 1 John 4.14, a savior of the world. In fact, remember in John 1.29, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of what? Of the world. He, he takes away the sin of the human race. So it's always in that third category, at least in this instance. He takes away the sin of the world. Now, just, just for a second. I, I just, as I was in my study this week, I just thought, do, do we grasp it? Because I don't even quite know if I've defined it yet. I mean, he's a savior. He's a, he's a rescuer, is he not? He's a deliverer. He is the only savior, God, in the Old Testament. Christ Jesus now is recognized to be the savior of the world. And he is such, is he not? By taking away sin. And so listen, he's not the savior of, of everyone. Obviously, in John, you must believe in him. But I thought... Maybe sometimes we don't always quite understand. I mean, we'll recognize this title when you understand your desperate condition. When you and I understand the predicament we're in, the wrath you face, the terror that awaits you, the condemnation you're under, the weight of your sin before a holy God, you'll cry out to Him. But what is sin? I mean, if he takes away the sin of the world and he's the Savior because he saves us from our sin, what is sin? I don't know if we quite understand we need a Savior because we fail to call sin, sin. 
one person said that sin is, an abomin- is abominable to God. In other words, God hates sin. The writer of Habakkuk tells us that his eyes are too pure to approve evil. That he cannot look on wickedness with favor. We know that sin, according to Isaiah 6, is contrary to his very nature. Remember when, when Isaiah had that vision, he came into the temple and the seraphim were crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And so all sin is contrary to his holy nature. The writer John had said in 1 John 1, 5 that God is light. And you remember, in Him there is no, what? Darkness at all. And the ultimate penalty for sin is death. And that is extracted for every infraction against revealed truth, according to Romans 6, 23. Even the smallest transgression is worthy of the same penalty. In fact, you remember James says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become what? Guilty of all. That's how much God hates sin. What sin does is it stains the soul. It degrades the person's nobility. It darkens, Paul says in Ephesians 4, the mind. It makes us worse than animals, for animals cannot sin. See, for what sin does is it pollutes, it defiles, it stains. And all sin is lonesome and revolting in God's sight. Scripture calls it in James chapter 1, filthiness. Sin is compared in 2 Peter 2 to vomit. And sinners are the dogs that lick it. 2 Peter 2.22 Sin there is called mire. And sinners are the swine who wallow in it. 2 Peter 2.22 Sin is likened to a putrefying corpse. Sinners are the tombs that contain The stench and the foulness, according to Matthew chapter 23. Sin has turned humanity into a polluted race. Listen, there are terrifying consequences of sin. And those consequences are hell. In fact, Jesus said, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out from you, throw it from you, for it is better that you, that not one of your body parts perish, that it would, than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. Sin will take you straight to hell. Hell is where sinners are, according to Revelation 14, tormented with fire and brimstone and smoke, and their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Listen, beloved, we need a Savior, do we not? We, we need a Savior. Sin, the Bible tells us, pervades our innermost beings. Jesus said in Matthew 15 that it's out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and slanders. These are the things which defile the man. You might say, well, what kind of, what would, what would motivate a man to walk into a, a house in Uganda and kill that woman? Sin. And it's deep in his heart. Sin is a purposeful antagonism to God. It is the human nature to love sin, to hate God, and it's rebellion against God. It describes sinners in Isaiah 57, 4 as rebellious sinners, as rebellious children who open wide their mouths and stick out their tongues against God. And what sin ultimately does, beloved, is seek to dethrone God. It seeks to usurp them and it begins to place self on that throne. And so all sin biblically is pride. And beloved, before God redeems us, we love our sin. 
We delight in our sin. We seek opportunity to act our sin out. Yet because we know instinctively that we are guilty before God, we inevitably attempt to camouflage or disavow our own sinfulness. It's kind of scary. In fact, sin does not necessarily express itself in overt acts. Sinful attitudes, that counts. Sinful dispositions, sinful desires, and a sinful state of heart are just as reprehensible as the actions they produce. Do you remember, beloved, Jesus said anger is as sinful as murder and lust is as tantamount to the sin of adultery in Matthew 5. I mean, we minimize sin. We say sin's no big deal. Listen, I'm telling you, we can say that, but the Bible says one sin can take you straight into hell. I mean, we lie to others because of sin. We lie to those even closest to us. We cover our sin. We hide from it in self-defensive mechanisms. We tell ourselves that God is merciful and loving. He understands our sin and he can't be so hard on us, can he? I mean, when you begin to look at the central demand of God's law, it's, and you know it, it's to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and so forth. So we can say that to lack a love of God is the epitome of of all sin. And if this isn't enough, Paul says that sin is ungrateful. He said that, Paul, that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against uh, all ungodliness because when men knew God, they did not glorify Him as God and they did not give thanks to Him. Sin at the ultimate expression is a lack of thankfulness to God. It is a horrible predicament. That is why a Savior is needed. Now, let me just say this. Here is the good news of the gospel, right? I I wouldn't just pray right there and say amen. Here is the good news of the gospel. That God sends his son down to be a savior for you. And then finish the sentence. Who forgives all of your what? sins you say well how does he forgive us our sins well it tells us in ephesians 1 7 that in him we have redemption through his what his blood we have redemption through his blood through his death and then it says the forgiveness of our trespasses so in the person of christ we have redemption now redemption is the deliverance of a payment of a price In the New Testament, slaves had to be redeemed, prisoners had to be redeemed, and they were always redeemed for a price. But as it relates to the person of Christ in salvation, it says of him in Revelation 1.5, to him who released us from our sins by his blood. And so biblically speaking, to be released or to be redeemed means to be delivered from sin, to be delivered from death to be delivered from hell itself. You could not shake sin's power. You could not shake off sin's guilt. Sin had you in a proverbial stranglehold and you were caught in the jaws of death itself. And beloved, the profundity of the cross is to be redeemed from all your, what? Sins. This is why we have a Savior. Listen, you ought to go, and I ought to go this morning away from here in just a moment thanking God that He's your Savior, that He's the Savior of the world, 
That He's your Savior. That He's not just Savior for this place at this time. But He's the Savior for all who have life and breath after all. All things came into being by Him and apart from Him. Nothing has come into being that has come into being. He made everybody. It says in Christ Jesus, Paul in Ephesians 2.13, You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, beloved, the ransom was paid. You were set free in the death of our Savior. So what that means is this. He forgives you. He forgives you of your sins. He lets go of your sins. When you come to faith in Him, He becomes your Savior. He's the Savior of the world, but He's your Savior. You say, what does that mean? Well, when you come to Christ, your guilt is gone. Your punishment is taken. Hell is banished. Sin is defeated. The bondage is broken. And you say, well, Scott, what do you mean he forgives my sin? And you've heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. Forgiveness in the Scripture, beloved, is a promise. That's what it is, a promise. You say, well, it's a reality. He, uh, he forgives. And aphiame, uh, just the Greek word means to let go. In other words, those sins that were strangling you, that one sin that would cause you forever to go to hell, God in His infinite grace and His infinite mercy, He lets go. He He forgives your sin. But what it is, is the promise, beloved, meaning this, that He will never, ever, ever, ever bring your sin back up to you. God will bury your sins. God will never use your sins against you. Christ has paid, if you will, for all your sins on the cross. He is a Savior. He paid for your past sins. He paid for your present sins. And He will pay and has paid for every future sin you will ever commit. That's the teaching of Scripture. And we got to tell people this, don't we? I mean, you know the teaching of Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our, what? Transgressions from us. In other words, it's a promise. As far as the east is from the west, as far as you can infinitely go, he took every sin you ever committed and he put it upon himself on the cross and he becomes, in that term, our savior. I'm thinking of Isaiah 44, 22, when he says, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. He just took them out. In other words, he let them go. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions. And here it is in 43, 25. I will never remember your sins. Ever. So listen, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ironic thing that he forgave you all your sins, but you do a good job dredging them up, don't you? Listen, I'm telling you, he forgave them all. He's never going to call them back up on you. Oh, you may have consequences in this earthly life. We, we get that. But God Almighty, through the work of Christ on the cross and through His death on the cross for you and by placing your faith in Him, He forgives you all your sins. Jeremiah 31, 34, the promise of the new covenant. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. I'm telling you, it's a promise. You're killing yourself. You're beating yourself up and you've got a Savior. Rejoice in that Savior. I mean, just imagine for a second a film of your life. And this film, every, every thought, every action, every deed was on that, every misdoing in the sins of your, youth, in your youthfulness. He takes that video and he chucks it in the sea, never to bring it up on you again. 
I mean, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. Beloved, do you remember in 1 John 2, 12, I write to you, I love this phrase, because your sins are forgiven. <laughs> Past tense. Colossians 2, 13 says, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Beloved, he is a wonderful savior, is he not? So as John closes this account out, he said, here's two crucial truths that capture the only proper response to the person of Christ. Number one, you've got to place your faith. You've got to believe in him. And secondly, you must recognize that he is the savior of the world and you are in need of his grace and his mercy. So listen, though sin be horrible, and I can't paint it as bad as it was. Maybe some of you thought, boy, that's a horrible description. Listen, it's infinitely worse than whatever I could describe. But the glory of the good news is that Christ is infinitely greater than we know, is he not? And for all of eternity, we're going to worship him. But it's only this place and in 1 John 4, 14 that he's identified as the savior of the world. So I pray, do you know the savior?